Throughout his life, Jesus frustrated and opposed the expectations of those who were listening to his lessons. When this happened, Jesus paid far less attention to trying to fit into what others had hoped him to be like, but instead confronted them squarely head-on, using them as teaching opportunities into the true nature of God and his kingdom. In few places in scripture is this tendency more evident than in today's lesson, These Twelve Jesus Sent Forth. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. It is my pleasure to be with you again. And uh, today, these 12 Jesus sent forth is, a, is my privilege to be teaching you. During such a historic time, not only in the history of the church, but perhaps of the world, at least when seen from retrospect, I believe future generations will look back and recognize the dedication of the Rome Temple as um, one, of those, one of those events that, it, that stands out, even though Every temple is extremely special and important. Um, this, will, this will stand up there, perhaps kind of like the opening of the Jerusalem Center in Jerusalem, because uh, it's a major installation of the Church of Jesus Christ in, in a world where, or in a, in a place where, that has traditionally been the seat of major world religions. Um, and I, I think it fits in very well with the topic of our lesson this week, uh, as Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, prepares his disciples, ordains them, perhaps ordains them to the priesthood, but in any case gives them the power, as it says, to heal and sends them forth on their first mission, along with many other teachings that we'll discuss today. But first, today's question comes from Greg and Jill, and I'm not sure which wrote this, but uh, both of your names are on the email account. Um, Greg and Jill ask that, is it possible that Satan, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, was not so much trying to get uh, Jesus to doubt his identity when he said, if thou beest the Son of God, then to turn these stones into bread. But uh, just trying to get Jesus, he already knew that Jesus was the Son of God, just trying to get Jesus to prove his identity by challenging him on it. Uh, and I, I, I think that's an interesting idea. I think, well, obviously, Satan, as, as Greg and Jill point out, obviously, Satan knew who Jesus was. Um, he may have wondered whether Jesus knew that himself, knowing that Jesus had passed through the veil. But um, it's an interesting idea, the, the idea that rather than trying to get us to doubt, Satan is also trying to get us to prove who we are if, we, if he can um, not only appeal to our fear, but to our pride. They seem to me to be two sides of the same coin. So interesting idea. Thank you for your question there. If you would like to have your question featured on the air, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrin.com. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, depending on how you see it, this lesson is chock full of content. There's so much that there's no possible way I could cover everything that either I have prepared or that I could prepare. So I'm going to go quickly, and I'm going to pray that the Spirit can somehow come in in spite of how quickly I'm, I'm speaking. But uh, I want you to know that even though I'm talking fast, as fast as I can, hopefully it'll be fast, uh, that these these concepts and these words are very, very important to me. But I also think that it's really important that um, I get to as much of it as I can. So I'm going to try to move move fast to cover more. 
Um, so first of all, first thing I'm going to do, we're, we're not going to spend a ton of time on Matthew chapter 10, even though that's where the, the title of the lesson comes from. Um, other than to say that Jesus, he, he sets these, he sets his disciples apart, his 12. So this is when we first realize that Jesus is calling the 12. And this is why earlier there was a little bit of controversy when we're talking about the Lord's or uh, the Sermon on the Mount, who Jesus is talking to. Because in the Sermon on the Temple, for example, in the Book of Mormon, Jesus stops what he's doing. He's teaching the multitude. And then it says specifically, and then these things he said to his 12. And then he turns back to the multitude and says this. There's part of that sermon that is reserved specifically for his 12 apostles. But in uh, the New Testament, the word apostles and disciples are not distinct. That And disciples are anyone who's following Jesus. And it's not until chapter 10 that we learn there are 12 that are set apart separately. Now, this is a symbolic gesture. Before this time, it wasn't as if um, a, a prophet would specifically set apart 12 followers that had a distinct status. Jesus did this in order to symbolize the redemption of the 12 tribes of Israel. It seems, it seems clear uh, that this isn't explicitly stated in the New Testament. However, it seems clear that this is why he would choose 12. And, and later he says, you'll judge the 12 tribes. And he says to uh, in the Book of Mormon, he says that you 12 will judge the the descendants of the Nephites and Lamanites. And so the point of the 12 disciples, his 12 special disciples, his special witnesses, is to, number one, bear witness, but also to uh, have some sort of accountability or exact some sort of accountability from the followers among the the house of Israel. So he sets them apart and gives them the priesthood or the keys or whatever special status they, they still lacked. He may have already ordained them before this time. If so, we don't have the account in Matthew. But he, he gives them a special charge as well. So first he says, go preach the gospel, tell them the good news of the kingdom, but then also heal them. You know, give sight to the blind, heal the lepers and cleanse them. And then he, he gives very... Uh, interesting counsel that it echoes the counsel that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount, which is don't worry about your physical well-being. Don't worry about taking along an extra an extra change of clothing or or money or food because God look at look at all of the creatures in the world and how they're taken care of and you're worth so much more than just a sparrow for example and so God is going to watch over you as you go out don't worry about preparing what to say because God is going to put words in your mouth so this it does appear to be on the nature of special counsel just to his disciples and just in this specific circumstance and he sends them so when we think about a Christian missionary from the time of Christ, we think about the voyages of Paul and all the other apostles after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And those missions had a very different nature than this mission. This would have been a, a short-term mission, and it would have been um, in a very localized geographical location. So who knows, they might have gone all over the Judea and Galilee and the areas surrounding, but they, and, he, and he told them, just go to the house of Israel. So this is a couple of days journey maximum for all of them in any direction. And he would have sent them all in different directions. And, and I'm guessing that this would have taken a few months at the most, maybe even just a couple of weeks at the, at the least. So um, the, some of the prophecies that Jesus makes about what will happen, for example, he says, you're not going to go throughout all Israel until the Son of Man will come. Um, he, he makes some prophecies about that. It seems 
possible or even likely that those those prophecies were meant to apply to their later missions as they as they expanded the meaning of the word of Israel to include the Gentiles. And and this also gives this is the real uh, meaning when we talk about the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 is where we finally get the surface meaning of what that is. Uh, and, and to read this verse, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's sending them specifically only to those people who are worshipers of Yahweh, who believe in the same scriptures, who are of the house of Israel, unto whom all of the promises of the Old Testament have been extended. And in fact, there's an episode not covered in the scriptures of today's lesson where Jesus is in, I can't remember if it's Tyre or inside in one of the cities to the north of Israel. And there's a Gentile woman there who wants him to bless her and include her in what he would call the kingdom. And he says, the you know, the, the master of the house is going to feed his children before he feeds his animals, meaning um, there's a priority to these things. He's, he wasn't calling her an animal, but he's saying there's a priority to these things. And she is so humble, she says, but even the, even the animals can eat the crumbs when the, when the food falls off the table. And he's so struck by her humility that he, he gives her the blessing that she's asking for. But Jesus during his lifetime, so this is kind of the point that I'm trying to make, is Jesus during his lifetime was not sent to bring the gospel, as he called it, to anyone other than the house of Israel. And it was the disciples later who would be called to extend that definition beyond. And the, and the whole point is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In order for that to come to pass, there has to be a first and a last. So the house of Israel is first, meaning they're the ones unto whom this promise is fulfilled first. They are they receive the teachings of Jesus and they receive Jesus in the flesh. And that makes them the first. But what makes the, and the Gentiles are the last to receive this message. And then it's flipped around because they're the last to accept it. And the Gentiles are the first. Now, these words are symbolic in so many different ways. And I try to bring them up whenever they come up. Um, and, it, and it applies, it's like many or even most spiritual principles, it applies in a macro sense and, a, and it applies in a micro sense. But here's the macro sense is that he's, he's sending them to go only into the house of Israel. Um, so watch for those. When, when Jesus talks about pride is usually when you'll see a manifestation of this, of this idea that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. But it's, it's such a powerful teaching that each of us can apply in our lives and understand how we can re truly receive and get closer to Jesus. Another teaching of Jesus here is in verse 34, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword for I am come in verse 35, I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now, much has been made of this verse over the centuries that Jesus doesn't, that number either Jesus's teachings are contra, contradictory or that his, uh, that he's not really a, a teacher of peace, but of that it's more complicated than that. Um, but the fact is that this is meant as a metaphor. And what we can see clearly from Jesus's own behavior is that when there is sin and when there is variance from the laws of God, when, especially when there's hypocrisy, rather than 
pretend it doesn't exist, to keep the peace, what Jesus does is confront it directly no matter what the consequences are to him personally. No matter how much somebody doesn't like him, he's willing to name these things for what they are. And that's what he means by, I'm, I'm, I'm not sent to bring peace but a sword. He's going to find us in our sinfulness and call it out because he knows the con- because the consequences for sin are real. And that's really the point is that I'm willing to bring a sword when necessary to point out what the consequences for sin are. I'm not willing to let you sit in your sinful behavior and pretend that nothing's wrong because everything is wrong. And that's what the sword of Jesus is, later on called the sword of truth or the sword of the spirit. And one final thing I'll mention from this chapter is Jesus says, this is interesting to me in verse 38, he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Now Jesus has not yet been lifted up on the cross so he's using a, an image from uh, what we can presume he's referring to the practice of Romans to crucify criminals. But nobody would yet apply this to Jesus. So he's saying to them, Who isn't, who, whoever isn't willing to die in a very terrible way uh, isn't worthy of me. It, right now when we read that, we say, who, who, whoever doesn't take upon him his cross and we understand that as your particular burden, the suffering that you bear, some of which may be um, unjustified. And the, the point is that to us, that metaphor is absolutely clear. But to those listening during the lifetime of Jesus, it would have been far less than clear. It would have been very challenging for them to hear whoever's, whoever's not willing to pick up a cross, uh, this, this terrible instrument of execution of the Romans, our hated oppressors, and carry it and then follow me, isn't worthy of me? That seems very strange, Jesus. Why would you teach us something like that? So this is one of the many ways in which Jesus challenges the expectations uh, of those who are, who, who are attempting to learn from him and who are intrigued by what they see and they're touched in some way and they don't know what it all means. And challenging expectations is probably the biggest theme that we'll be dealing with today. And that's, that's entirely what chapter 11 is all about. So the first thing that happens is, uh, now if you think of John the Baptist, John the Baptist sends some followers to Jesus and he's being, he's in prison, he's been imprisoned by Herod and he, uh, he's called out Herod's evil and hedonistic behavior and been in prison for it. And he's been being, in those days, if you were in prison and, and they didn't feed you, right? They didn't take care of you. If you didn't have followers or friends or family who were willing to come to you in prison and bring you food or um, clothing or whatever, then you just went without those things. So when you were in prison, you had to be taken care of by friends. So people were coming in and out to John. And so John sends a couple of them to Jesus because he's heard about what Jesus is doing. And so this is very interesting. I think a lot of time, times we skip over this part without quite understanding what's going on. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that I really recommend reading the New Testament and the Old Testament in as many translations as possible because when these words become so familiar to us that they can't surprise us, then a lot of times the underlying concepts are, just glide past us. We, we, we aren't surprised when we should be surprised. There are certain things in the scripture that should be familiar to us, but a lot of times the things that should not be familiar, we should recognize that the people of that time would have been surprised. We're, they're lost to us because we've read the same translation our whole lives and we grew up with it. We, we have all of this history with it and that history can take over. So there's nothing wrong, well, I guess I shouldn't say it that way. There's nothing more wrong with the King James Version than than all the other versions, but um, 
there is something wrong with never reading another translation. It's, it's very worthwhile to get out of one translation and change so that we're, we're constantly surprised by the scripture. So in this particular case, verse 2 of chapter 11, when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, then I'm, and I'm reading from the King James Version a little <laughs> hypocritically, but uh, and this is the one you'll, all of you will be most familiar with. Um, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now, this is very, very significant. John the Baptist, the one who testified of Jesus and said, there's somebody coming whose shoes I'm not even worthy to unlatch. And when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And that Lamb, the Lamb of God is very clear. The meaning of that is very clear. There's one use for a Lamb in the law of Moses, which is on the Day of Atonement, the high priest is going to sacrifice a lamb on the altar of the temple and carry the blood into the Holy of Holies as the forgiveness for all of Israel. So John knew, the point of this is John knew who Jesus was. He knew he was the Messiah and, and had already borne testimony of him. And here John is sending disciples to Jesus and saying, wait a minute, are you are you the, really the Messiah? And and why does he do that? It says here, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ. So something about the way Jesus is behaving has given John, and whom Jesus calls, in a few verses later, he calls John a prophet, and not just a prophet, but a special prophet, somebody who's more than just a prophet. He said he's given John enough doubt that he would actually send disciples to question Jesus and ask him, wait, are you the Messiah or not? It sure doesn't seem like it from the way you're acting. So we can read into this that Jesus had already set not only the expectations of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the Bible and the Sadducees, the, the elite among the, the Jewish leaders, he had not only set their expectations or uh, defied their expectations, but somebody who was steeped in the Hebrew scriptures as John the Baptist and in the Holy Ghost, he had given him cause to doubt. And uh, so rather than respond to it directly, I'll read you Jesus's response. Jesus answered and said to them, go and show John again these things which you do, ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. So the, this is Jesus' response. And, when, and in typical fashion, Jesus doesn't say, yes, I am. Go tell John. He doesn't have anything to worry about. He's been dealing with the Messiah. He baptized the Messiah. You know, John is not having a whole lot of hope, probably, that he's going to come out of prison. Except that in, well, I'll get to, I'll get to why he might, he might be hoping to come out of prison. But um, Jesus doesn't respond. Instead, he gives this answer, tell him what you see. And then he lists a few specific things. Now, the things that he lists, it's almost like a laundry list of the prophecies that John himself was spouting before Jesus came to him. These prophecies from Isaiah. So John was using different, perhaps different verses from Isaiah, but John was obviously very familiar with Isaiah and specifically what Isaiah had prophesied about the Messiah. And Jesus here in verse 5 says, uh, the blind receive their sight, for example. So if you want to if you want to look and see four verses where Jesus uh, specifically is referring to, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, Isaiah says, and let me just switch tabs here. In that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity, 
and out of darkness. In Isaiah 35, uh, verse, verses 5 and 6, the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped or unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. In Isaiah chapter 42, well, chapter 6, uh, sorry, verses 6 and 7, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So this is why John might have, might have thought, what am I doing in prison? I'm personal friends, I'm cousins with the Messiah. And I, my guess is that if Jesus could be said to have a best friend, it would be John the Baptist. I, 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 ha, I sort of believe that they would have had a lot of contact with each other growing up. And uh, so Jesus would not only leave the prophet that, that prophesied his coming, but also the man who um, was his, his close relative, he would leave and, and had done only righteously and was imprisoned unjustly, would leave him in prison in spite of this prophecy in Isaiah to the contrary, must have made John doubt. He's thinking, okay, if Isaiah is saying, not only, not only are the blind going to see, but the, the prisoner shall come out of the prison house. So this is why John might have taken Jesus's, he might have taken Jesus's reply as really hopeful that he was going to come out of prison. And as we know, John never came out of prison alive. Um, but so this is, and, and we'll get to what this would have meant to John and to Jesus after, after we finish uh, talking about Isaiah. But this is Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. So he's going to open the blind eyes, bring out the prisoners from the prison. And finally, Isaiah 61. So there are four chapters in Isaiah that Jesus specifically deals with. And the final one is the prophecy that Jesus began his ministry with, is that uh, God has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek and to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And, the, and, and then, and so the interesting thing is that Jesus talks about the things that he has done and he leaves out the things that if you were to, if you were to go and read all of these prophecies in Isaiah, you would find before and after each of these verses, you would find plenty of verses where, where Isaiah is saying about the Messiah that he's going to come in judgment and he's going to bring justice. And we talk a lot today about how the Jews just didn't know that the Messiah would come twice and that one time he'd come humbly. And, you know, if, if only they could have understood that the, that the, the Old Testament was prophesying that Jesus would come once in humility, etc. Um, and that, that is a little bit of a simplistic view, but, and we also don't realize that Jesus, in fact, addressed these questions during his life and right here in the scriptures. So John is saying, you're supposed to be coming in strength. And it isn't clear from these, from these prophecies that Jesus himself mentioned as speaking about himself. Now, later on, when we talk about Luke 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus talks about all the things in the scriptures that pertain to him. Here he is doing it, and we know what scriptures he's talking about. And there may be more chapters in Isaiah that he's referring to and elsewhere in the scriptures, but these four chapters stick out. And the, the, the point is this, that Jesus was using prophecy to testify of his mission, and he and he's obviously fulfilling this prophecy, and there are parts of the prophecy that he's not fulfilling. And that, that, that really doesn't sit well with John the Baptist sitting in prison, thinking, what, what happened to my life? God called me to testify of the Messiah. I know him, I did it, 
I fulfilled my mission, and here I am in prison. And not only am I in prison, Jesus or John the Baptist doesn't say, send and say, hey, you would, have, you would expect if he's going to send any message to Jesus, it would be, Lord, come free me from prison. And it's a mark of how humble John is that he doesn't do that. But instead, he really wants to find out, should we look for another Messiah? Because you really don't seem like you're bringing justice unto the Jews. You don't seem like you're doing any of the things that you're not preparing. You're not making the desert bloom as a rose. There's not a river flowing across the desert. I expected there to be a lot more upheaval and upheaval on the part of the, the enemies of the Jews, as opposed to you telling all of the the authorities, the Jewish authorities, that um, they, they're the ones who are worse than their, their enemies. So John is very confused. So this is not a simple matter. This is, this is not something that we should just gloss over and recognize, oh, John just wanted to know from Jesus what's going on. No, John was actually doubting that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist, the one, and, and Jesus now, he, he answers this question, to the, uh, to the disciples. He talks a little bit more in Matthew chapter 11. He, uh, Jesus, oh, the, the, the final thing that Jesus says to these disciples before he sends them back is, blessed is he who, whosoever shall not be offended in me. So think about that for a minute. And what, to put it in modern terms, what Jesus is saying is, it's another one of the Beatitudes. Remember, blessed are, are the uh, peacemakers. Blessed are the, they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. He's saying, blessed is he that shall not be offended in me. And offended, we can, we can put that in the terms of this lesson to say, blessed are those that, even though they have expectations, when reality frustrates their expectations, they don't stop believing in someone they already know as God. And that's me putting it in my terms. This is not Jesus's words, but it seems like that is one of the beatitudes that Jesus is tacking on to the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, among all all the other ways you can be blessed, here is a very important one. And it's for you, John, you, my closest friend, my largest testimony, the, the apostle I had before I even called apostles. Here's the beatitude for you, the believer and by extension to all of us, the believers in Jesus. Blessed are they that are not offended because Jesus doesn't fit into their box that they wanted to put him in, that they thought he should do, he, the way they thought he should be like, but instead are willing to believe in him as he is. And we'll talk about why that's a better idea, basically for the rest of the lesson. But this is his message to John. Now, John may have received this one of two ways. He may have thought, okay, I'm not going to be offended in Jesus. I'm going to repent. Or he may have thought, yeah, but in the same chapter of all these other prophecies where Jesus, where the Messiah is restoring sight to the blind and cleansing the lepers, he's freeing the prisoners. He's uh, bringing justice. He's doing all these other things. And he could have thought, I just really expected him to be different. And there wouldn't have been anything wrong for John to have that expectation because he was reading the scriptures and believing them that they were true. And yet here he is being caused to doubt because uh, some of them are coming true, some of them aren't. Uh, and isn't that interesting? And they're not in chronological order in the scriptures. You know, the first thing that's written is not the first thing that happens. And that is confusing to John and it's troubling. And it's more troubling to him that the scriptures might not be true than that he's in prison. That's also very interesting because 
we are creatures of, that need meaning. We crave meaning with everything that we are. We crave meaning more than we crave to be out of prison. Uh, and the more religious we are and the more we love God, the more we crave meaning and to know that we're pleasing him. And I think John was concerned. Did I really please God or do I need to repent? Uh, so it, it's very, it, the, the crisis of faith that John was going through, John the Baptist, um, is very informative because it, if John the Baptist can have a crisis of faith, so can all of we, all of us. And Jesus then later on explains, what, what did you think you were going to see when you went out to see John the Baptist? Did you think you were going to see somebody who was living uh, a life of ease? Did you think you were going to go out and see somebody who was a pushover? Did you think you were going to go out and see somebody who was uh, going to going to listen to what you had to say about what the gospel was and, t- and have you tell him what you wanted to believe and have him confirm you in your false beliefs. Because if any of those were the case, then you had another thing coming. But what if you went out to see somebody who was a prophet and not just a prophet, so when it says in verse 9, a prophet and more than a prophet, what he means is not just a prophet. Not only was he a prophet, but he was that prophet that everybody up until his time had been prophesying about the one who's going to prepare the way. And in fact, if you're, if you're willing to accept this, this is, this is the kind of Elijah that you can look for, somebody who's coming before the day of the Lord to prepare the way. Um, so if you, if you have ears to hear, um, and if you're following along, we've been sort of, I've been loosely paraphrasing uh, verses 7 through 15. If you have ears to hear, if you, if, do you have ears? Are you listening? This is important stuff that I'm telling you. That's what Jesus means when he says, if you have ears to hear, you better hear. If, if you are within the sound of my voice, this is really important for you to listen to. That's what that means. Um, so now here's a part here. And now next follows a couple of verses that are, that are very seldom understood and usually just skipped over. Whereunto shall, shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets, calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you, ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. What does this mean? This is once again, Jesus, uh, he is addressing directly the idea of expectations that people have towards him. And he's saying, you're like a bunch of children who are playing music for a stranger in the, in the marketplace. And you're saying, hey, we played you a little dance tune. Why didn't you dance to it? We played you a sad song. Why didn't you cry? In other words, Jesus is saying, everybody's got expectations of me, but you're like children. You have no idea what my agenda is what my true mission is, and the fact that you're playing a certain kind of music doesn't really have anything to do with what I'm called to do. I've got very important work to be about, and if you're interested in getting involved, then come and follow me. And he talks about how that's going to be done. The, this entire chapter, it seems like, if you, if you read it without understanding this, it seems like Jesus is jumping from one subject to another, or at the very least, Matthew is jumping from one event to another, and they're sort of unrelated. But as you understand this idea of expectations, you realize this is all put in one place and in this specific order for a very good reason, which is Jesus is dealing with expectations from the start of the chapter to the beginning and into chapter 12. In verse 20, then he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. And he says, woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, uh, Capernaum, woe unto the Bethsaida. There are three of these Galilee villages where he'd done a ton of miracles. And he says, you know, it's going to be better for the Gentile, the cities of the Gentiles than for you because you've had so many witnesses. Now, 
on its surface, it seems pretty easy to understand. You've, you've received greater light, and so you will receive the greater condemnation because you haven't repented. One thing you have to understand about these three cities, they all are in a, they share a location. They're right along this northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and above them is a, a slope known today as Mount Arbel. And in this, in this, I guess you would call it a cliffside, at the top of which was a plateau, are carved a bunch of tunnels. And this was the hideout. Um, this was the center, you might call it the headquarters, of the guerrilla resistance. These were insurgents against Roman rule. Their, their plan, their whole philosophy was, we know that we're the people of Yahweh, the most powerful God, and so we have to resist being oppressed by any people that come upon us because we've been promised that God will bless us by giving us freedom, and we're waiting for the Messiah. And while we're waiting for the Messiah, we're going to oppose violence with violence. It's, when, you, when you say it that way, it seems like a very reasonable philosophy to hold. And these were violent people. They lived near violent people, at least. So up above the hills of these three cities are uh, the violent resistors to all of Rome. And that's why all of the people were made to suffer, because the, the Roman soldiers moved into the area and were much more militant there than they would have been elsewhere. And what Jesus had been teaching, you know, in his Sermon on the Mount was delivered along the slopes, along the foothills of that same steep cliff of Mount Arbel, at least that's where we believe the, the Sermon on the Mount would have been taught. And Jesus said in that, if somebody hits you on one cheek, then give them the other cheek. If they take away your coat, then give them your cloak. Meaning, you know, these Roman soldiers that are killing you and raping your women and, and mistreating you and perhaps crushing your houses or, or burning them down, reward that kind of treatment, re react to it instead of with violence, but with love. That is such a radical teaching. It was so different than anything that anybody had been given to, uh, than the way in which anybody had been taught to behave. And so Jesus is saying now, you, the fact that you expect your life to go a certain way and the fact that you expect to react a certain way to violence you need to address that. I'm here to bring a sword to that idea that you get to you get to respond to evil with evil. Because when you respond with evil, it doesn't matter what came upon you. It's still evil. Jesus is saying you, you're meeting, if you're not meeting evil with good, then you're not pleasing God. And so these cities where this was happening, these are the cities where people are giving into the natural man and they are uh, indulging their temper and they're meeting violence and e evil with violence and evil. And so he's specifically naming them. And even though they are cities of Israel, he's naming them as being worse than the cities of the Gentiles. Now, when he says you're going to be thrust down to hell, that word is Hades, which also means that it's basically the Greek word for the grave. And what Jesus is saying is these woes that he's pronouncing, the word woe in Hebrew means a statement of, a, of the utmost concern and worry and warning and the, the, about the fact that the road you're on is leading you to doom. And it's also a little bit of hopelessness. Now, Jesus knows he's already done all the miracles in these cities that he possibly can. He's given them all the witnesses that they can get. 
And if they haven't repented, then woe unto them. They're doomed. They're heading, the, the road they're on is heading them towards the grave. And if you want to understand a, a little bit about the tradition in which Jesus was offering this woe, I wish we had more time, but uh, I recommend Isaiah chapter 5 to you. This is one of Isaiah's woes, and he's talking about how Israel is headed on the path to exile. And, um, you know, you're headed towards the grave. And that, so for us to read this, we think, oh, he's telling them they're going to hell. Like, that's pretty harsh language. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's fulfilling a very, uh, very well-understood scriptural tradition of pronounce, when he pronounces these woes. But he's addressing, with these cities, he's pronouncing these woes. He's addressing the difference between their expectations. You expected that the Messiah would support you in offering violence for violence. And what I'm telling you is, you need to change. The, the fact that that's your expectation doesn't give you the right to do evil. You have to change your expectation. I'm bringing a sword to that idea. So then in verse 25, Jesus says, I'm grateful God, he gives a prayer to God. I'm grateful that you have revealed these things to those who are like little children. Um, meaning Jesus' followers, the ones who are the meek, the poor in spirit, those who are outcasts, those who are humble enough to seek after this itinerant preacher up in the, in the back country of Galilee, rather than all the important scholar, biblical scholars throughout, scattered throughout Israel and concentrated in Jerusalem. Those people who saw themselves as sinners and, and rejected of God, those are the people that are receiving these words. Jesus says, uh, no, nobody knows the Father unless the Son, except the people to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. None of these people throughout Israel, none of them understand God unless they're willing to listen to me when I tell them who he is. I'm defying, God defies all your expectations. You've gotten the entirely wrong idea. So now is when I want to take a break from talking about the scripture and actually talk about us. Uh, this isn't just a lesson to ancient Israel. We often think, oh, you know, if only they could have gotten it. I mean, it's so clear that Jesus had to come twice. This isn't about what they should have gotten. First of all, it wasn't that clear. It wasn't clear until Jesus actually died that he was going to die. Not to, And we can't say that the people at that time didn't understand the scriptures or they didn't have the Holy Ghost. It just wasn't clear. They had these expectations, and it was reasonable for them to have the expectations. And Jesus' message was, look, you have to be ready. When life doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, and God doesn't do the things that you think he should do because you thought the plan of God operated in a way different than it actually does. When that happens, for you to blame God is a huge mistake. And I'm here to bring a sword to that idea. I'm here to confront you in that idea and, and to make you recognize it. And if you're willing to help you when you humble yourself, to help you understand all the good things that God does bring you. Now, how comforting would that have been to John the Baptist sitting in prison to feel like Jesus is offering him, instead of deliverance from prison, Jesus is offering him, uh, a, you know, counseling, what, what we might consider today. I'm going to help you understand that your expectations don't matter. I'm going to give you a greater understanding into your suffering. But that's, you know, with the, at the risk of being flippant, that's exactly what Jesus does do. With one important difference, and that is, that of when, he, when Jesus says, who, who isn't willing to take upon himself his cross, 
they might have felt at that time, like, this is really harsh. The, the penalty for following Jesus is this horrible death. And then later on, we learned the significance of that statement. Oh my gosh, the horrible death that he himself was able to suffer and willing to suffer and chose to suffer. There's an important, um, I hate to, I hate to spend my powder early, but uh, there's an important verse that we're going to study in the, when we get to the book of Colossians that I, I really think we ought to talk about now. And this is in Colossians chapter 2. Um, when, and I wish, uh, I, I, I really recommend that you read this in other, um, in other translations. In, in the King James translation, verses 13 through 15, when you're dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, if you are lost hearing that, then you're in good company, because that is not very clear. But when we go to, if you go to another translation, you'll read this. He canceled the unfavorable record of our debts with his binding rule, with its binding rules and did away with it completely, nailing it to the cross. And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. That, may, that becomes a little more clear. It has reference to um, Jesus, when, when Jesus was before Caiaphas, and he called himself the Son of Man, and he said, you're going to see the Son of Man raised up on high. It had reference to the fact that Jesus was um, talking about Daniel chapter 7, and saying, these beasts that represent the powers of the earth, they are going to trample on the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is going to be lifted up above them, and all judgment will be given into his hand. That's what he was saying when he called himself the Son of Man. He was referring to Daniel chapter 7. And what Paul is saying is, it wasn't Christ who was defeated when he was led to the cross, when he had to carry his cross. It seemed so much like a defeat. But if you think about it in terms of the fact that these, these earthly governments were taking the, their God, the one that they claimed to worship, and unjustly condemning him to death and then forcing him to suffer and walk this humiliating path and then to ultimate death and destruction and torture. That is what Paul means when he says he made a public spectacle of them. Jesus didn't come to earth to, to save us from all of our problems. What he did come to do was to expose the fact that earthly governments are unrighteous, and nowhere was that more on display than when he was walking to the cross, when he was carrying that piece of wood to Golgotha. That was when he made a public spectacle of them, and, and Paul calls it his victory procession, because he'd finally triumphed over the powers of this world by revealing them for what they were. And so Jesus didn't seek to evade the suffering that was coming. In fact, he embraced it. And that's the point. That's, and so I, even though I, I was looking forward to teaching about that when we talk about Colossians, but it's worth talking about now. This is really central to the message of, of our expectations, which is that we expect to be freed of the, our troubles a lot of times when we, when we talk to God. 
Now this is in direct contrast to another le to another concept. We're now going to shift over to uh, Luke chapter eleven, and in Luke eleven, um, maybe it's in Luke seven. No, it's in Luke eleven. So in in, in verse eight of Luke eleven, uh, Jesus is teaching about uh, you know you and and we have this teaching uh, elsewhere in Jesus's teachings as well. Um, you want some bread from your friend because you have some guests late at night. So you go over and you try to wake your neighbor up and you say, um, look, I've got some late night guests, but I'm, I'm out of food in my house. Can I borrow some? And your, and your neighbor is like, well, I'm already in bed. You know, I, I don't want to give you, I don't want to get up. My, my kids, I'm going to wake up my kids. So out of nature, out of your friendship, you're not going to get up and give him the bread, but because he won't stop bugging you, you will. And the point that Jesus is making is, uh, that's how much you need to pray to God. Another, another example, and I didn't bother to look up where this is, but um, the unjust judge, the parable of the unjust judge. And there's a woman who wants justice, and she keeps asking the judge to intervene in her case. And he wouldn't do it because of the law, because he's a lazy judge, but um, because she keeps asking him and won't let him go. He, and he's like, oh man, she's, gonna, she's never going to stop. So he finally gives her justice. And he says, even so, you should keep praying to your Father in heaven. So on the one hand, Jesus is teaching us in this very same lesson, he's teaching us, pray to, pray to God that he will deliver you from your troubles. And on the other hand, the entire message of Matthew chapter 11 is, you don't have the right to be upset when God doesn't meet your expectations, because look at what happened to Jesus. In fact, Jesus, he, he made them a public spectacle. He revealed them for, he revealed these expectations for what they are in his victory procession. And uh, anyway, th those two ideas, and if you have, if you have comments about how to rec reconcile those two ideas, then I welcome your email. But those two ideas are front and center in this lesson. So finally, Jesus says, come unto me that labor and are heavy laden. So you, you're heavy laden with your expectations, but take upon you my yoke, which is the truth, which is the truth of really what, what God intends for you, the blessings that you actually are going to receive and that, and that God can give you. Does he say that he will take his, our burdens away? No, he says, take my yoke upon you. Add another burden to your burdens. But this yoke, is, it's light, meaning you know the, the wood, if you, if you picture a yoke, and this is a common theme that a lot of teachers hit, and so I'm going to spend just a little bit of time on it, which is uh, a yoke is a piece of light wood. It's not meant to be heavy in itself, but it redistributes the load. It makes it easier to carry the load. So this, this load is no longer unbearable. It, makes it, it doesn't lessen your load. It just makes it so that you can carry it. And Jesus is saying, you, the fact that you have these expectations is, is burdening you unnecessarily. So take my yoke upon you. And then there's, there's something at the end here, which I'll just mention. It's not scriptural, but my burden is light. This doesn't work in any language other than English. It is not what Jesus intended, but I just love it. I just love that phrase because it has two meanings. My burden is not heavy, but it's also the opposite of dark. My burden is this, this substance that has no weight. It is light from the sun, light from the, the lamp at night that you use to study the scriptures by. Jesus is saying, 
the, the light that comes from God, the light of revelation. My burden is light. And who knows whether he could foresee a day when English would be a language that this would be translated into, but um, it's certainly not what anybody else in any other language would have understood. But I just love it. I love thinking, whenever I hear this scripture, I love thinking about the fact that Jesus's burden is in fact his, his heavenly light, the light of the Holy Ghost. And picking that up is the easiest thing in the world and also the hardest thing in the world. So it's a, it's a joy to carry. It makes all the other burdens lighter. A couple of more things we'll mention. Um, first of all, there, in, in, uh, math, or in Luke chapter 11, he gives, a, um, he gives a, a, an example of the Lord's Prayer, which is different from the one we have in Matthew. And the question is, well, how, how can the Lord's Prayer be different? Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That doesn't, that doesn't appear in Luke. It's called the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, briefly, there are two, what you might call, or what are, what are called uh, manuscript traditions in the New Testament, the Alexandrian and the Byzantine. And this one cropped up in one uh, part of the Byzantine tradition and not in the Alexandrian. And so a lot of people believe that this doxology wasn't originally spoken by Jesus. And some people have the interpretation, this is very controversial, I guess is my point. Some people have the interpretation that um, because Jesus is teaching different things that he would have added this to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew than he would have in, uh, in Luke. And some people teach that this was obviously added later. Um, my own personal opinion is that the doxology changes the nature of the Lord's Prayer from what was obviously a Hebrew poem into something that sounds more like a Greek um, bit of prose. And so I'm not 100% sure that it was original to Jesus, but who knows? The, the point is that, uh, that there is a lot of controversy and, and the, the books of scripture are human works. They're works that are not just, it's not God sticking his finger down from heaven and writing, uh, writing on a tablets of stone, exactly the words that should be delivered to our ears. It's, it's, men, many times called of God and sometimes not called of God. Um, and in, in many cases, at least in, in recent centuries, women as well, uh, engaged in transmitting the word of God and doing so imperfectly. And that's okay. The, the doxology doesn't take away from the Lord's prayer as much as it, as much as it does, uh, change our understanding of it. And so the, the Old and New Testaments are not only works of God, but works of man. And, they're, and, and so it's not only prophecy, but great literature. And it's not only scripture, but it is wisdom, human wisdom. Now, briefly to cover Mark chapter 2, Jesus talks about something in Mark 2 that, he, uh, that we'd covered in, in, I think, either last week's lesson or two weeks ago, where he heals this, he heals this man sick of the palsy, and then he uh, in order to prove that he has the power to forgive sins. And, and one thing that I didn't mention is um, claiming to forgive sins to us doesn't seem that controversial. This would have shocked people to their core because G what Jesus was doing, we think of forgiveness, we have, a, we have a, a Christian informed idea of what forgiveness is. You know, we go confess, we feel remorse, 
We change our hearts. We pray to God for forgiveness. We make restitution. These are the steps of repentance, and we've all been taught them. So it doesn't seem that revolutionary that Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Obviously, we think the thought that occurs immediately is, oh, he saw into this man's heart. He sees that he has the, the heart of a repentant person, and so he offers the forgiveness. What the scribes, the, the assembled scribes would have thought is Jesus is going, he's going diametrically opposed to the law of Moses, which says you're forgiven one day of the year when you show up at the temple and the priest performs the sacrifice on your behalf. That is how you get forgiveness. And Jesus is usurping this method of God-ordained forgiveness. He's taking away what God has given us, our method of forgiveness, and he's substituting himself in its place. So uh, just, just remember that, that Jesus is saying, he's making a very bold claim, which is, I am as important or even more so than the temple. I want you to know that I have power to forgive sins. He's not just trying to convince them that he's right. He's trying to teach them the nature of his calling as Messiah. He's trying to show, show them, I am the truth that the temple is pointing towards. The temple was just a symbol. The temple isn't the truth. I am the truth. And so that you can know that, let me do a miracle right here in front of you. So later on, that's Mark chapter 2, and later on in, in Luke chapter 11, they're questioning him, and they're saying, show us a sign. And he says, I'm not going to give you a sign, because I've already given you so many signs. He knows these are people who have already plotted on how to kill him. They don't like him. And so they're pretending in front of the, in front of the, the multitude that they really want a sign, but they've seen plenty of signs. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. And so he says, I'll tell you what sign I'll give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because Jonah was dead for three days. And so until I revive from the dead, you don't get to know anything. You, you think you're going to kill me. I'm going to let you think that. And you, your fathers killed the prophets. And you think you're better than them. But uh, here you are doing the same thing. And and they they scoffed at what he was saying. And, and the... The lawyers, as it's called in the King James Version, the, the biblical scholars, the, those who interpret the Bible, the teachers of the law, they said, hey, um, you know, why are you being so tough on us? We're just teaching the scriptures. And he says, you're the worst people of all. You'll, you'll put burdens on other people that you wouldn't even lift up yourselves. You're, you're hypocrites. And Jesus hated hypocrisy more than anything else. If somebody was a repentant sinner, Jesus loved that person. But if somebody was a hypocrite, Jesus had no patience with their attitude. He would call it out uh, consistently. He would say, you think you're being religious, but you're actually, you're following a course that is totally antithetical to a belief in a real God that loves you. Because you are saying you believe one thing and you're doing something else. And as long as you're doing that, there's no possible way God can reach you. And so he had no patience with hypocrisy. And then what, hap what should happen? But at the end of that chapter, they start taking counsel together and how they're going to kill him. Um, so one final thing before we close, and that is in Luke chapter 7. I want to close with this because this is, this is the talk that I read every Sunday, or almost every Sunday, during the sacrament. There's a talk that's offered by, in April 2015, unless I'm mistaken, by uh, 
Elder Uchtdorf, then President Uchtdorf, and it's called The Gift of Grace. And he relates the story of Jesus' dinner with Simon the Pharisee. And so Jesus sits, he's, he's invited by one of the Pharisees, and Jesus sits in his home, and there comes this woman. And the woman is obviously a sinner, and, and the, the, the cultural observance at the time was that you didn't shut people out. So this woman was probably a stranger to Simon, but because Jesus was there, she felt like she could come in to the home. And though she wasn't, uh, it might have, it may have even been an open air dinner. And because it wasn't closed off, uh, she may have not been included in the dinner, but she could sit at the table and she was washing Jesus's feet with her tears and wiping it with her hair. And it was in stark contrast to the way Jesus was treated by Simon. He said, you know, Simon thought within himself, man, if Jesus only knew what kind of woman this is, and we can only imagine what she was involved in, probably some sort of sex worker. And, uh, and you know, you can also imagine the way she'd been treated in her life. And what Jesus said was he, he perceived Simon's thoughts and he gave him this parable. And he said there was a king who forgave two debtors, one 50 pence, and I can't remember the two amounts, but one a huge sum of money and one a small amount of money. And which of them are going to love this king more? And, and Simon says, well, the one to whom he forgave the most. And unless you're paying attention, you won't realize that Jesus then flips it around. He says, this woman to whom, this woman who has many sins are forgiven, or, or this woman's sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. Now notice in the parable, First, the king forgives, and then the love comes. And in, the, and in the, this example of the, the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears, she loves much, and then Jesus forgives. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Jesus, once again, reverses it. The parable is, you know, if, you're, if little is forgiven, you're going to love little. Jesus is implying if you had, lo- if you had loved a little bit, it's not, you're loving me a little bit is not a result of me not forgiving you. If you had been willing to love a little bit, then you would have been forgiven too. And there's satire here because Simon's sins were so much greater. And, and I don't mean greater in the sense that, um, you know, it was harder to repent of, or there is, there is definitely a spectrum of the severity of sins. What I mean is it was harder for Jesus to redeem him because the sin of pride that Simon had was so much was so much more entrenched in his personality that this woman recognized her sin and she came and she uh, so Simon did not wipe Jesus's feet he should have washed his feet as the if he had had a respected guest he would have washed his feet and cleaned them and he would have given him a kiss on his cheek as a sign of respect but he did none of those things because he didn't respect Jesus but this woman respected Jesus she was awed by him. She worshipped him. And, and the word worship, uh, we've mentioned this before, but the word worship at this time, it, it actually came from a word meaning to kiss the ground of a feet where a king has walked or a god has walked. It, it, it presupposed such an imbalance that, of, of status that you would be willing, the, the very ground that somebody else walked on would be holy enough for you to, to kneel down and kiss it or to prostrate yourself and kiss it. And this woman was literally worshiping Jesus. She was kissing his feet 
and she was washing, she was, she was crying because she felt such remorse for her sins. And, she, and having no cloth to, that she considered worthy to wipe his feet with, she used her, her hair. He would have had dusty, dusty feet from walking around in sandals. And she had no other water to wash his feet with but her tears. And so she, she cried on his feet and kissed them and washed them with her hair. And the fact that she was willing to... And the fact that she was, and the fact that she was willing to humble herself to this extent, and then Jesus was able to take all of her sins as as repugnant and as disgusting as they might have been, and look them squarely in the eye, and he and he looked at her lovingly, and he said, "Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace." Now this is in contrast to the woman caught in adultery. He said to her, "You know, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you." To this woman, he said, thy sins are forgiven thee. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't impossible for Jesus to immediately, immediately reach down to the depths of her soul and bring her back up from wherever she thought she descended to and restore her into, his, into God's grace. And that's the point of Elder Uchtdorf, is if we, when It's precisely when we think that we're in God's good graces that we need to repent. And it is precisely when we're most humble, we're willing to recognize the imbalance that exists between us and Jesus and importune him, cry on his feet and be willing to humble ourselves abjectly before him. Humble ourselves to the very dust. There's no limit to what he can do for us in those times. And that is the, the fallacy of our expectations that we expect God to go to work for us but what we can what we can truly expect is that Jesus rather than responding to our every whim is willing to suffer all of the difficulties of our lives with us he went through the hardest things that we could possibly go through as well he understands them and he feels them keenly along with us more keenly keenly than we ever do because he never numbs himself to the pains of life he has no other expectations except that we will be challenged and tried in this life, and he feels all of our pains with us. And when we recognize that and we're willing to abandon the false expectations that we have, he can truly forgive us and therein can redeem us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.